0: Bokertov, good morning everyone. Welcome to the Aliyah Day. Hope you're all having a beautiful day and doing well and being blessed. We have people here watching from across the Fruited Plain. Glad you're with us. Hope you're uh, doing well. Hope we have people from Maine watching, people from Ireland perhaps. We have people who watch. We have lots of people from Canada, which is great. So to all of our Canadian friends, uh, we welcome you. Glad you're here and uh, hope you're doing well. Baruch Hashem want to give a shout out to our Tulsa Synagogue. I realize this morning it's been a while since I've uh, mentioned that, but if you live in the uh, Tulsa area or within 100 miles of Tulsa, we invite you to join the Sar Shalom Synagogue in Tulsa and be a part of that. And That would be uh, wonderful to be a part of that uh, organization and ministry Baruch Hashem. It's also been quite a while since I've said anything about our folks down in Mo- Mobile, Alabama. Um... And uh, Tashana, who's watching from Jamaica, I just saw that pop up. Welcome. We have a couple of folks who watch from Jamaica, and uh, that's good. So we have Jamaicans. We have a tie to personal family ties to Jamaica. Jamaica as we call it. Kingston, to be specific. So uh, welcome, everybody. Glad you're here. So anyway, going back to Mobile, Alabama, our Mobile folks, hopefully they're still watching. Mm. Gina, there she is from Mobile. Glad you're here. There you are. Baruch Hashem. It's wonderful to have people watch from uh, Mobile. We need to get the Mobile, Alabama thing going. Uh, so, um, y'all work on that down there because I like Mobile, Alabama. And uh, I I need a reason to come there. <laughs> to, 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 to visit. Uh, I love it. I love to go see the USS Alabama. And all the attractions there and... Uh, the Museum of the Maritime Museum and the beach, and it's beautiful and the, for, and the, and the forts, the civil War forts on the coast there um, it's wonderful. So, uh, so Gina, make something happen. Put something together, give me a, an invitation to come to Mobile, Alabama. be wonderful and uh, Brukashem, and if you're watching from Dublin, I want an invitation to come to Dublin as well. Ireland and Scotland. And South Africa, for that matter. I think South South Africa would be cool. It's time for some travel, right? That's wonderful. All right, we're in the uh, third reading of Bealotka, the book of Numbers, chapter 8. I'm sorry, chapter 9. Pardon me. Chapter 9. And um, we're going to be reading from chapter 9, verses 1 through 14 today, as we read the third Aliyah. And uh, then we will uh, get to some insights. We have... Several insights today, some of our uh, very interesting and, and kind of uh, general in nature to some Musar topics. But let's, let's dive in here and see. Chapter 9. The word of Adonai says, Adonai spoke to Moshe in the wilderness of Sinai in the second year from their exodus from the land of Mitzrayim in the first month, saying, The children of Israel shall make the Pesach offering in its appointed time. On the fourteenth day of this month, in the afternoon, shall you make it. It is, in its appointed time, rather, according to all its decrees and laws, shall you make it. Moshe spoke to the children of Israel to make the Pesach offering. They made the Pesach offering in the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, in the afternoon, in the wilderness of Sinai, according to everything that Adonai commanded Moshe, so the children of Israel did. There were men who had been contaminated by a human corpse and could not make the Pesach offering on that day. So they approached Moshe and Aaron on that day. Those men said to him, We are contaminated through a human corpse. Why should we be diminished by not offering? Adonai's offering in its appointed time among the children of Israel. Now, just to push pause here for a moment, this, of course, is talking about Pesach Shani, the second Pesach, which is on the, 14th, uh, the evening of the 14th of Iyar. It is a one-day event, as it were. And even though it's the Pesach, um, it is not unleavened bread. What do I mean by that? Well, you have Pesach, and then you have, on Pesach, we have to get the chametz out, and we can't have any hamits, we can only eat matzah. The second Pesach, the Pesach Sheni, is just Pesach. It's not the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So if you're going to have Pesach Shani, you're going to have the Pesach Seder, but you're not necessarily going to have to rid your home of the chametz, uh, and you're not going to be without Hamits for a whole week because the Feast of Unleavened Bread, is there's no there's no second Feast of Unleavened Bread, nor is there a second Feast of First fruits. There's only the the second Feast of Pesach, which is of course called Pesach Shani. Now, uh, the reason I bring this up is because we refer to the week of Pesach as Pesach, but in reality, the, week, the, it, the Pesach is a one-day event, one-day festival in reality. The Feast of Firstfruits is also a one-day uh, festival. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is a seven-day festival. And so, um, uh, I like to point this out because people uh, forget that uh, sometimes. And uh, don't realize it. I also want to say, because we've we've read here, um, and I spoke about this at length before and during Pesach, um, but I wanted to make it more explicit, uh, or, or mention it at least one more time here, and that is that Jews today do not eat lamb at the Pesach seder. Many of you know why, but there's always new people, so the answer for that is because lamb, the lamb that was eaten at the Pesach Seder, was, in fact, a sacrifice. It was a sacrifice that had to be offered on the altar. And, of course, it had to be offered on the Temple Mount altar. Now, some say you don't have to have the temple to have it. Some say you do, but it doesn't matter because even if you didn't have the temple and thought that you could offer it there, you would still have to take it to the Temple Mount and sacrifice the lamb on the altar at the Temple Mount. So therefore, if you go down and get some uh, lamb, and the people that have lamb um, at their Pesach Seder because they think they have to are usually, well, not usually, they always are non-Jews because Jews don't eat lamb for for all the reasons I just said. But if you go down to Walmart and you buy um, a package of lamb, first of all, it's not kosher to begin with. it's probably halal, which means it's been offered up to the false god, Smala, uh, facing towards Mecca. So that's bad. Um, so, only, so not only is it not a sacrifice, it's actually a sacrifice to a demon, actually. Um, but that's an aside. So you, you, you take it home, and then you serve it on Passover night, and you think you're following the, the Torah, but in fact you're actually cr- creating a major halul Hashem which is a desecration of God's name, because you are insinuating, implying, inferring that this is a sacrifice. And to top it all off, not only can you not sacrifice today, but as it says here, these people were in a state of ritual impurity because they had touched a human corpse, and therefore they couldn't offer the offering, therefore they couldn't have Pesach, which is why they're bringing this up. Every one of us, ladies and gentlemen, are in this status today. Every single one of us are in this status. We have all been contaminated on the level of a human corpse. Every single person. Which is why, when the temple is rebuilt, maybe soon in our time, we will all have to be sprinkled with the ashes and the water mixture of the ashes of the red heifer because we are all in this status. So, all that together, this is a, a more complete picture of why we do not have lamb. On Passover, and I've I've talked about this as I've said several times, but I do think it's important because um, it's so prevalent amongst uh, certain non-Jewish groups. But but you really you really need to to know that it's not it's not okay in the USA, or in South Africa, or in Ireland, or in Scotland, or anywhere else, or Antarctica, where they would have frozen lamb. Even if it was fresh. All right. So, um, Eight. um Moshe said to them, Stand and I will hear what Adonai will command you. Adonai spoke to Moshe saying, Speak to the children of Israel saying, If any man will become contaminated through a human corpse or on a distant road, whether you or your generations, he shall make the Pesach offering for Adonai in the second month on the 14th day in the afternoon. They shall make it with matzah and bitter herbs. They shall eat it They shall not leave over from it until morning and shall not break a bone of it. Like all the decrees of the Pesach offering shall they make it. But a man who is pure and was not on the road and had not refrained from making the Pesach offering, that soul shall be cut off from the people. Uh, For he had not offered uh, offered Hashem's offering at its appointed time. That man will bear his sin when a convert shall dwell with you. And he shall make a Pesach offering to Adonai. According to the decrees of Pesach offering and its laws, so shall he do. One decree shall be for you, for the proselyte, and for the native of the land. I also want to point out, by the way, that this Pesach Shani is not a Yom Tov. Meaning that if you are going to celebrate the Pesach Shani because you could not celebrate Pesach because you were in a state of ritual purity, which, by by the way, doesn't really apply to anybody today. You say, well, under what circumstances could I celebrate um, the second Pesach? Well, I mean, there are some esoteric things about the Pesach Sheni where somebody could have a second Seder. Um, Sorry, I have like a little hair on my glass or something. Anyway, um... So there's some esoteric spiritual things that you could do. In other words, you could have a second Seder on Pesach Sheni if you wanted to, but I'm speaking here about under what circumstances could you skip or should you skip the regular Pesach and then later make it up with a Pesach Sheni? and the answer is, in our day and age, never. Why? Because the only reason you should do that is if you were ritually unpure and unable to offer a sacrifice. As a result of the reality that we can, nobody can offer a sacrifice and we're all ritually impure, there's no reason to skip the first pesach. You understand? So, this only applies, in its in, in its reality during the uh, when the temple exists. Um, also again as I was saying. Even though even if that were the case and say the temple existed and you were going to celebrate the Pesach Shani because you were ritually impure and therefore could not bring your sacrifice to the altar then it still would not be a Yom Tov for you. It's not a Sabbath like like the like the day like the 15th of Nisan is a, is a Yom Tov it's a Shabbat. Why? Well, first of all, it's not. Secondly, if it were a yumtiv, then everybody would be required to keep it. Because God's yumtiv is not optional. It's not limited to one Jew or two Jews or a certain class of Jews. Um it is for everybody. So that's why it's not a yumtiv. I want to begin with this uh, couple of thoughts here. I was just reading some some Musar points and um, there's a lot I, I would like to share uh, with respect to this, but maybe I'll just share one thing. Um, but this comes from uh, the Romko's writings, uh, some, some introductions, I should say, to the Romko's writings. And it's just it was just something I read today, which is a nice reminder. It, it says, it's basically the idea is that everybody has something that we need to work on. Um, uh, everybody has something to, giving birth, birth, uh, to, to work on. Vincent asked, what if someone's giving birth? I'm assuming you mean in today's day and age it still wouldn't, it still wouldn't apply. Um, because for a woman to be ritually impure after having given birth applies to the temple, not to, no, to nothing else. So a woman who's given birth can still come to synagogue she can still sit down at the Pesach Seder. Um, she just can't go to the temple. But the, since there isn't a temple presently, maybe s- rebuilt soon in our time, um, it does that there's really no nothing to worry about. Um, so anyway, we all have something that we can work on. And this, this um, insight is about that. It says, one can escape the pitfall of denial by thinking as a fallible human being I must have some defect that needs correction. Incidentally, I've I've come to believe that the single most important phrase that we could put in front of us on a regular basis, have in the forefront of our mind, and maybe literally put in front of us, like put it on on a... sticky note and stick it on our bathroom mirror is the phrase I am dust and ash that's something that Abraham said to Hashem I'm dust and ash and I think that this would go a long way to um, help us all remain humble we have in our day and age, we, we constantly seem to fight, particularly in our day and age. We fight against a victim mentality. Everybody wants to be a victim. Everybody thinks somebody owes them something. didn't used to be that way in the early days of our country. Our country was founded upon the principle that, that you, you got what you deserved, you got what you worked hard for, etc., etc. There's a lot of uh, narratives going along around these days, which are completely and utterly false, um, uh, that are completely uh, devoid of any historical reality or truth whatsoever. Um, by the way, I just have to say this: the study of history is critical for our our youths of of today. Our not just our youths, but our adults. Did you know? That, um, you know, everybody is, is against Civil War monuments these days um, because people don't know any, any history whatsoever. And so they want to tear down um, history. They want to tear down, tear, down, tear down monuments. And I read an article the other day that the, um, the Black Lives Matter, uh, you know, protesters or whatever, vandalized and defaced the monument, I think it might have been in Washington, D.C., I'm not exactly sure, but they defaced and vandalized the monument to the 54th Massachusetts. The 54th Massachusetts. Now, some of you are thinking to yourself, um, well, it's a Civil War monument, so, so yeah. <clears throat> yeah, so, the 54th Massachusetts. First of all, that's a Union That was a union, a federal unit. In other words, they were fighting for the North. That's number one. Number two, it was an all-black regiment. Now, I'll let you just do a say moment on that. But back to my point. One can escape the pitfall of denial by thinking, as a fallible human being, I must have some defects that need correction and constantly alert to their detection. So we're all dust and ash. This prevents us from having a victim mentality because if you're dust and ash, you don't have any rights. You don't, nobody, you don't deserve anything. You're nobody's victim because you're under everybody's feet. And by the way, you say you're under everybody's feet. Well, everybody's dust and ash, so actually we're not under anybody's feet. We're all in this together, meaning we're all dust and ash. Aha! Uh-huh. But I digress. So so basically, we, we have to understand that there's always something we can work on. Always something we can work on. So it says, Rabbi Levi Yitzhak of Berdachev was once standing at his doorway <coughs> when a cobbler passed by looking for work. When a cobbler passed by and looking for work it says he said to Rabbi Levi Yitzhak you must have something that needs fixing don't you and the Rabbi Levi Yitzhak tearfully turned to his wife and said see even he can tell I thought that was a really poignant um, insight for us to consider in light of um, what I was just saying, so another insight from the Gutnik Humash, going back to the lamp, to the lamp, the lamp lighting. It says, "On these words, Aaron did so." And from verse three, chapter eight, and verse three, Rashi writes, "This tells the tells the praise of Aaron that he did not deviate from God's commandment." But why m- might one think? That Aaron would deviate from God's commandment with respect to lighting the menorah. Isn't it obvious that uh, Aaron would just obey Hashem? Well, it says the answer lies in Rashi's comment to verse 4 that God caused the menorah to construct itself after a piece of gold was cast into the fire. So... Uh, as you might recall from Shemot 25.31, that the menorah is supposed to be hammered out uh, from a single pi- a single piece of gold. It's practically humanly impossible to do that. So the question became, how was the menorah made if it was practically humanly impossible to do it? And the answer is, is that he took a chunk of gold cast it into the fire, and Hashem supernaturally created the menorah. Now there's a lot that we could say about that with respect to the menorah and uh, to Yeshua, etc., etc. But we'll leave that there for a moment. So it says, being that the menorah was manufactured by heaven with minimal human effort, one might come to the conclusion that the details of how it was lit by a human being were also of minimal importance, for this was merely to cause the menorah to elicit its heavenly light. Nevertheless, Aaron did not deviate from God's command, even when, logically speaking, the details appeared to be irrelevant, and therefore the Torah tells the praise of Aaron. So, using this to look at the concept of we're called to light people's fires, you could say, well, you could make the argument, and rightly so, that, well, Hashem lights people. It's, it's Hashem who leads people to holiness. And we could talk to them all day long. We could, we could talk them through a blue in the face, and it may not necessarily have any effect. And that's true. And that's why we have to be careful and we have to use wisdom When we're talking to someone, that we're not casting pearls before swine, as the analogy goes, that we're not getting into needless debates on Facebook and other um, avenues, but at the same time, we have to do what we can to light the fire, and usually we do that through encouragement and inspiration and trying to help people as best we can. Uh, and saying I say that in relationship to what I just read because you could you could go to one extreme or the other. You could forget that it's God who ultimately brings people to, to repentance. And therefore, you could try to browbeat them um, into submission. Um, that's not okay. Or on the other hand, you could think, well, it's going to be God who brings them, so there's really not any need for me to do anything. Uh, and that was—that's the danger that Aaron fell into. That he looked at the menorah and said, "Well, since God made the menorah, is there any really any need for me to actually kindle it?" And the answer is, God said, "I know I made it, um, but you still need to kindle it." So, going, looking at another insight here. This comes. This is actually an insight to our parasha from Akidat Yisach. And I just want to share this because it is so um, so apropos to our day and age, and particularly to our um, theological disposition among many. It says, what displeased God most? This is talking about the children of Israel in the wilderness who were asking for meat and eventually got quail, which we're going to get to in a, a, a bit later, but jumping a little bit ahead, it says, What displeases God most, or displeased Him most, was that they had chosen to be free from the moral imperatives of Torah over freedom from enslavement to their physical urges. So, what Akedat Yitzhak is bringing down here is that when the people were asking for meat, and they wanted meat in place of manna, what they really, really were actually asking for was to be free from the moral dictates of the Torah. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. So the people said, look, we know that God is providing us for manna, and he wants us to eat manna, but we don't want that. We want to eat something else. Specifically, they ask for meat, and Hashem sends sends them bird, quail. He does that twice, which is to teach us, among other things, that that God considers bird meat, bird flesh, the same as red meat. So, in any case, I think it's interesting, because when you talk to people about following the Torah, inevitably... One of the things that comes up most often is the people just can't seem to bring themselves to the concept of eating kosher. That is, from abstaining from certain foods that they're accustomed to eating, whether it's pork or shellfish or shark or eel or whatever the case may be. And that's interesting because it's it's intrinsic to the human nature, but it's also interesting because eating kosher is a prerequisite For holiness. But isn't it interesting that in the the wilderness, when we wanted to... Our ultimate goal was to pull away from God's will, his Torah, therefore to pull away from God, it it all circled around this discussion of what we wanted to eat. And that, of course, that's exactly what happened in the garden. And let's not forget that when the manna fell according to the sages according to all ancient sources the manna could be whatever you wanted it to be so it wasn't a matter of gosh you know i've been eating this manna and it's like eating gluten-free cookies i really would like to have some um some brisket you know what if you went and collected manna and it was kind of like uh it's kind of like the story of uh, the lost boys with um with Peter Pan, remember the Lost Boys, and, and they, 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 whatever they could imagine, they were eating. They were in fact eating. Where do you think that's those kind of stories come from? A lot of the times, it comes from the Talmud, it comes from Jewish literature. But I digress. So you could pick up manna, and you could say, "Look, you know, we have manna tonight, like we had last night." But tonight, the manna is going to taste like brisket, and bam, it tastes like brisket. The next night, it's tonight, it's going to taste like lamb chops, bam, it's lamb chops. Tonight, it's going to taste like lasagna, bam, it's like lasagna. So it's not like. And by the way, Jews ate a lot of lasagna because all the Italian Jews that came out of Egypt. But I digress. So it's not as if we were lacking anything. So what this is saying is that really what we wanted to do was get away from Torah. It says in Egypt, while they had been enslaved physically, Torah legislation had not yet yet regulated their freedom to partake of all the physical gratifications that presented themselves. Their food intake and, and their sex life and so on had not yet become subject to Torah law and guidance. The fact that they now disdain the very thing that would lift them to the level of being truly free persons particularly angered God. So God, what, God, what made God angry was not that they were asking for meat. That wasn't really the issue because had they just been sincerely asking for meat, he would have been obliged to send them some quail. But what he understood, because he's God, he understood that what they were really wanted is they wanted to be free from freedom. That the Torah brings freedom and they wanted to be free from freedom. Now I want you to think, now you're thinking to yourself, man, that is so crazy. What were they thinking? Ladies and gentlemen, we have a significant portion of the society today in our own country that is marching on the streets and they want to destroy the Constitution. The very thing that brings us freedom in the United States, they want to do away with. And bring us to a socialist, communist um, way of life. Now, I'm not necessarily trying to be political, but I'm using an example. Not that I shy away from being political because, hey... Political Politics and religion are related. But the rea- reality is, is that you can see how crazy and insane people can be because if you get rid of the Constitution in our country, then your freedom is gone. How free do you think you'll be, ladies and gentlemen? Can I ask you if, if we actually did dismantle the police department? How free do you think you would be? How free do you think you would be if there was no police? There was no no enforcement of the law. That's what a, a police officer is, a law enforcement officer. If there's no enforcement of the law, how free do you think you would be to walk from your front, or leave your front door and go to the grocery store? How free do you think you would be? Of course, not free at all. The absence of law is not freedom. It's actually the reverse. And that's what we wanted in the wilderness. We wanted in the wilderness the absence of law. Um, I'm going to end the Aliyah there. I have more to share, but I'm out of time. I do want to conclude with one thought, though. This is educational. It's not. It's not. It's not uh, it's necessarily spiritual, but it's educational because I want everybody out there to be educated. Because um, I want you to know something. So, in Los Estados Unidos. All the people out there that want to get rid of the police department, listen to me. I'm just sharing this. I know. I know. Listen. <clears throat> the, police, the, the local city could, if they were foolish enough, they could get rid of their police department. And all the people out there that lack education would be clapping their hands and saying, isn't that awesome? Now we have no more police. But we live in the United States. And every city is inside of a county. And the county, every county has a sheriff's department. And the sheriff is not subject to the mayor. The sheriff is not subject even to the governor of the state. The sheriff is an elective official on his own right. And he's the most powerful person in the county, actually. And so if the, a city like, say, Dallas didn't have a police department, then it would be the Dallas County Sheriff's Department that would provide law enforcement for the city. So all the people that think that they can just get rid of cops because they can vote them out on the city council need to go back and study basic civics in the United States. End of our Aliyah today. Thank you so much for being a part of it. Hope that was educational. That's what happens when you're here at the Aliyah Day. Get a little bit of Torah and a little bit of a history and a little bit of political science. Alright, blessings everybody. We'll see everybody tomorrow and we'll be back with lots of more to share. Shalom Aleichem.